Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. We're so happy to have you here listening to us. very special episode we're going to take a closer look at Akiko's story and see just how she got from age zero all the way to assistant concertmaster here in LA so uh welcome back Akiko thank you Nathan <laughs> this is a yeah it's funny this is a, sometimes the only free hour that we get to really uh talk to each other except for driving to work and back in the car so I don't know if I'll, I, may, I may learn some new things today I'm gonna see how you got here well, as Chris Rock would say, it's more like we've been married for like 30 years. Oh, yeah, that's true in the internet age since, yeah, we can basically, we know what each other is doing every minute of the day, thanks to the phones, so. And and commuting to work together, as you pointed out. That's right. So it'll be like we've been married 40 years by the time we're, we're done yeah. today. <laughs> for those who don't know, Akiko grew up in New York, close to New York City, but in Westchester County, the town of East Chester. And uh, when did you start? playing violin? I was five years old and I started in uh, the Suzuki program that was offered at my public school. That I mean, that right there is amazing. So could anyone start then at age five on an instrument? You mean from my school? Yeah. Well, as I'm saying, I don't remember if you had to pay. Well, that that's something. I mean, that that's amazing that you could do that and so close to the house. I'm, actually, I'm pretty certain it was related to, it was through the public school system. Yeah, that's amazing. So it is amazing because that just wouldn't happen now. Or No, no. There are some schools where, where kids are learning in their schools. For example, em- Elemental Strings in Santa Monica, where the quartet that I was in the, from the LA Phil went to play Schubert last year. Right. That is a school program where they're they're learning violin at school, which is pretty amazing. I mean, when I was growing up, it or was strings. starting in fourth grade. You, you could start strings in fourth grade and you could start band instruments in fifth grade. Uh, so that's, I, I actually did play a band instrument for a while, as you know. That's right. Um, and I forget what grade that was. It was pretty early on. I was so little that um, when I did walk to school with my horn, oh, I, maybe that was... By horn, you mean horn. French horn. My right? horn, was... my actual horn. Yeah, I would hit, the case would hit my legs and leave bruises. It's pretty painful. <laughs> it was so heavy, and uh, yeah, you're still not. All but my that preferred big, instrument so. would have been trombone. Strangely, I was young enough. I don't remember how old, but young enough that my arms probably even now my arms aren't quite long enough. <laughs> yeah, I see but those guys back when here, I was not... eight years old, I think it was not at all going to happen. I guess they told me later that there there's like an extension. Oh, okay. Use like a string or something to hold onto the slide. Oh, weird. It's like for flute, you know, kids, really little kids that want to start flute, they have the curved head joint model so that the total length is the same, but. Oh, but like folds back curved. in? Yeah. Oh, exactly. weird. Okay. So that they can still hold it. Okay. So, yeah, so I did play French horn for a while and I really enjoyed it. But violin was first by several years. Yeah. Yeah. The French horn was just kind of a distraction, <laughs> welcome distraction from, from learning the violin. Well, it is. The, I I do always feel like if I, yeah, if I could play another instrument, I wish it was the horn. It's probably the analog, the the brass analog to the violin, right? Yeah. Because it's like it's a little bit of a. Not the trumpet. Somehow I think of French horn being very very stressful to play, but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> maybe trumpet is just as stressful, but um, I'm, I, and I have no idea why I like the horn, but I love the sound it made. Yeah. And um, 
felt sort of like when I when I pick up a viola and I play a few notes, it has that same kind of resonance. Yeah. Well, similar range. Well, I'm glad you stuck with violin, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. I go back and forth between violin and lawyer, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> not so much violin and French horn, but yeah. Now your parents are not, uh, well, they're they're not musicians. I would I don't know if you'd go so far as to say they're not musical, but but they're they were not musicians. Not when musicians. You started. No. Um, my my dad is or was a a chemist, and um, and my mother is a. Uh, teacher she's a um, professor of Japanese language and your dad I mean when as long as I've known him he's really been a big fan of symphonic music and I mean they go to concerts they were they are still part of the Mahler Society or did they, I haven't heard any their membership lapse I, they may have they may have finally let that one go but did they take you to concerts because um, you guys would go into the city they did I, I remember going to see the New York Phil quite a bit when I was young um, and then one of my, as you know, one of my earliest memories of seeing an orchestra play was seeing the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra right. at Carnegie Hall play Rite of Spring, which um, we can get into more later, but that was probably one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen to that point, certainly. And even now, I still remember what it was like to sit there. And, and I think it definitely had a hand in, in my decision to to want to do orchestra. How old were you for that? I was... Actually, it was probably at least 10. Okay. Do you have any idea why your parents started you on the violin or why why they started you on an instrument? There so was a early? reason, although I can't remember specifically. I'm sure part of it was that we didn't own a piano. So there's that. Right. Um, it's easier. It's relatively easy to to start on violin, obviously, because the equipment involved is somewhat minimal, as anybody knows. Yeah, even know. now. So, yeah, so you just, you know, you pay whatever it's low commitments you just rent your violin and somebody somebody came to the house and started teaching me how to I think they started teaching me how to read music pretty early um contrary to how you began in the real you started right. the real Suzuki fashion. I was straight Suzuki so I didn't read and I didn't I didn't even years. really think about how that wasn't part of it maybe I think obviously the woman who first came to the house to teach me how to read music was not a Suzuki instructor and I my memory is hazy as to how she fit into my school program, but uh, I—it's weird. I, you know, how you have those childhood memories where you just—it's like a, it's almost like a snapshot, an actual literal snapshot yeah. in your brain. But I just remember being really young and having her pull out a giant flashcard with a whole note on it. Oh, I think it, yeah, I think it was like middle C, you know, on a giant thing, and um, yeah, that's and then everything goes away. I don't remember what happened after <laughs> that. <laughs> Do you think? I mean, was was it at all there weren't a ton of asian families around you growing up no right strangely, was, yeah. is there any part of that you think that was there was an expectation that you'd play an instrument or that it didn't, didn't really come into it it probably came into i mean i'm sure my my parents expected me to i mean i know even now my my mom feels strongly that our kids should all play instruments mm-hmm. well, um, so sure i think start if, on if there's an asian predisposition to teaching slash learning yeah an instrument, then sure, that that definitely came into play through my parents. Now, eventually, you you know you got thrown into the the deep waters. I mean, you you did most of your big time studying in New York City. Um, when did that start, or how how long were you learning outside the city? Uh, I was probably only two years. 
Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that early. So when you were seven? Seven, possibly eight. No longer than that, though, that we started going to Manhattan School pre-college. Okay. And that would be once a week yep. on the weekends? Saturdays, um, all day, you know, and involved, I think from almost right away, uh, we played an orchestra. So huh. we were very little kids playing an orchestra together. And then, and who was your teacher then at that point? At that point, it was Dorothy Rothman. Oh, okay. Sharon's Who was Sharon mother. Rothman's mother. Okay. And Sharon is a great violinist that we went to a summer program with. So I've never met her mother, but. Yeah. And I haven't seen her in years, but you know, she was a great teacher. And Okay. Uh, and who was your first teacher? My first teacher was Mr. Mr. Rob, Mr. Thomas Rob. Oh, Rob's the last name. Okay. Yeah. R-O-B-B. Uh, yeah. And he was, he was the teacher at. Ann Hutchinson's school. Okay. Was Al- Albert Tan, who's the violinist in Pittsburgh. Right. Who's friends with David Kim, concertmaster in Philly. He, remember, we, we talked about him. And Albert Tan had also bega- begun with Mr. Rob huh. years before the maybe, you know, probably eight years before me or something. And, and, uh, and we'd always hear about him or Mr. Rob would always talk about Albert Tan. And, uh. always, you know, he was, he was always, his, he was very proud. Well, so, so now Mr. Rob's got two violin, at least two at violinists, least. maybe more, you know, and I mean, major symphony orchestras, which is which is a pretty good track record for yeah. a, for an elementary school. I know string teacher. Yeah, there are great teachers everywhere, and it, you know, it, I can tell. I mean, already as parents, I mean, we we will get obsessed. You know, we want to find the best for our kids, and you know, I'm sure everybody's first reaction is like, yeah, start in the public schools, and and then it's like. Yeah, this guy set you guys up and and yeah he was re- he was very good and um and he was very enthusiastic you know the the lessons the classes always had like a real feeling of of just fun you know kids getting together and and just having a good time and was it like that at Manhattan school of course it got a lot more serious when I got to Manhattan school how how did you know that um well, see, initially we were in the, the Very Little Kids Orchestra, which was conducted by um, Diane Flagello. And that was still fun, you know, because we were little and they weren't, <laughs> they weren't trying to grill us. But then as you got even just a little older, I started playing and um, I th- maybe it was an orchestra up there. Or maybe the conductor became Jonathan Strasser, who was, you know, he was tough. I mean, I, I know people since then I've spoken to who were in his orchestras who said he was, he was, you know, a little bit of a taskmaster in a good way. Um, I think it's, that's where, I mean, even starting with Mrs. Flagello, but, you know, I, I've always had a very sort of re- regimented view of how orchestra is or how it should go. You know, your just yeah. basic decorum, you know, talking, bring your pencil, little little things that start you off on the right foot, I think. Yeah, weren't you surprised to get to college or conservatory and you'd meet people that had, you know, they were coming to conservatory and they'd never played an orchestra before or maybe just once or twice? Sure, although since I didn't go to conservatory, it wasn't surprising. You know, at Harvard, it wasn't surprising maybe. Although I really think most people at Harvard even had, had played in their state youth orchestra or... Sure. And a lot of them came from pre-college. You know, I knew I already right. knew a lot of people there when well, I Well, that's got jumping there. ahead... But yeah, little, so well, but... so back to Manhattan School. Mr. Strasser was the one, the first one who ever made us play person by person. Ooh, down the line. Yeah, it's terrifying. Even re- remembering, I remember distinctly that that time. I I don't know if it was just the one time or if it was, if all we needed was one time to 
get back in line and learn our parts. But uh, yeah, that was, and in fact, I don't remember what piece it was, but I kind of muddled, <laughs> muddled through when he got to me. And um, and that, that was when I, I first heard the expression, good, but no cigar. Oh, okay. Which I always heard is close, but no cigar. Oh, maybe it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's close, but no cigar. It would be funnier if you said good, but no cigar. Maybe, yeah, I, I, I probably am not. So I remember not having, I, I remember being sort of glad that it was over and thinking I'd done okay. But I was thinking, I don't know, I don't know what that meant about the cigar. Well, that's, I, I think I told you, right, I had almost the same experience in my youth orchestra. Yeah, right. where, you know, I got... The horseshoes. Right, yeah, as soon as I finished... The guy said, close, but yeah, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And you got that right away, so. Yeah. Um, it took me a second, and then I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. I was probably the same it's age, eight or nine. pretty funny, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how long were you in that program? Um, so I stayed at Manhattan School until, I think, again, I, th- maybe it was a, I think I was 11 when I left. But you still kept going, going into the city. I did. I, I continued at Juilliard pre-college with um, Masao Kawasaki and then eventually Miss DeLay. Okay. Dorothy DeLay, just to be clear about which, <laughs> Not <laughs> which the other, big time the other violin teacher it was. So from 11 to, to 18, to, till you went to college, yeah. you were there. Yeah. And so, yeah. Maybe did it... I, I could have been 10. I, yeah, again, I don't remember. It was, some, it was something where I ended up doing a lot of years of, I did enough years of pre-college theory and solfege that I could have passed out a graduate level, I think, by the time I left. <laughs> and was but that a I didn't similar program? Because I wasn't good enough. Once a week on Saturday yes. or something? Okay. Same, same setup all day. all day, yeah. So you start probably orchestra first thing and then, or maybe afternoon, I forget. But. And what was the age range of pre-college? Age range, of, it could have been anybody. I mean, Sarah Chang was there in my theory class with me when she was six. <laughs> um, six in the air quotes. Yeah, I wasn't sure if... <laughs> Wasn't sure if I should Six openly make make the quote more. 13. Yeah. Well, she was definitely definitely younger than me. I can say that for yeah. sure. Um. So she was. Yeah. She was in my theory class, and um. Yeah. She was. And I mean, every age, like super young kids. I was young, but not the youngest. Obviously, I mean, it went went from. Mm. Yeah, it went from like five or six to. Well, I would say no. I would say she was probably the youngest because, like, you know, you couldn't be a beginner. I don't think. So you've had, you had to have at least a few years of right, yeah. instruction. So let's. She wasn't yeah. exactly a beginner. <laughs> no, definitely not. So yeah, like yeah, then up to yeah, high school graduation age. So. Well, and while we're here, what, who were some of the other violinists or other instrumentalists that that we know about who were in pre-college with you? I think when I got yeah, Gil was still there. Gil Shaham was, um, and I remember running into him at um, before a. A lesson with Miss Delay and being like completely starstruck, you know, he was yeah. seventeen-year-old Gil. He just he he was named Person of the Week, I think, by uh, when they like, they used to do that. I don't know if they still do on ABC News or something. Oh, back when a classical musician could get that kind of attention, right? Weird that it's in my lifetime, but yeah. So uh, he he stepped in for someone very last second in London, like London Symphony. And played Sibelius, maybe, I think. Yeah. Uh, and right after that, I ran into him at this lesson. I was, like, completely blown away. It was Gilshaham. Huh. And um, was, you mentioned Sarah Chang. Was Midori around at that time? Midori may have been just a little too old for me to ever run into her. Or she may have been, like, in high school, like, leaving high school right. when I was coming in or something. Um, 
because yeah, and I think Gil's just a little younger than her. And then who else was there? Um, um, a lot. I mean, a lot of people who are still out there now. I'm, you know, Olivia Song was my year, right? And um, and who else? That actually, I can't really. Um, well, certainly a number of people that we we run into. Well, and... uh, James Ennis was there for uh, a year, maybe right. not long. So you know. I know our listeners will be really interested to to know what was it like studying with Miss Delay and what was that whole it because when I've heard you talk about it it's not you don't just talk about the lessons you talk about the whole experience basically because it wasn't just you know you've got your 10 a.m. Saturday lesson and and you you study with her from 10 10 to 11. If you got the 10 a.m. slot you could probably be sure you'd be playing by four o'clock in the afternoon she would she would never come in before 3 30 maybe three o'clock that was an early day if she was in but they would schedule you would get a, like a time at 11 a.m or something <laughs> and then yeah yeah you you learn to adjust your your day accordingly yeah not just you but your parents too because someone's yeah there's a lot there. of parental a lot of parental involvement that was assumed and uh i mean you even at that age 11 12 you said it wasn't that uncommon to be hanging around there till what time at night oh i mean you know, there were days where we didn't leave till 11, 11.30. Wow. I just PM, can't imagine. Yeah. And then you said the, the atmosphere there. So there, was there a little anteroom or a hallway outside her studio? There was studio? a hallway, which I don't even know if it exists anymore. If they've already rearranged the little <laughs> Demolished rat it. maze there to, <laughs> to not include that space anymore. But it um, there was a, like a square-shaped clearing. See, so I remember, you know, probably my, on my deathbed, I'll be able to tell you how to get to that room from the elevators. <laughs> but um, turn off the elevators, you know, to the right, then you go left down the short little hallway. And then almost right away, you ran into that little clearing outside. And there were bathrooms just right there. And, you know, you'd warm up in the bathroom if you wanted. Because, you know, uh, there was no, there wasn't an actual you know, place to warm up. And you might be sitting there for six hours. Yeah. And then all the other parents and the other kids would be sitting out there. Yeah. And everybody's Listening. hoping for a little bit of her favor, right? Because she could she yeah. could make careers at that point. It's very strange when you're that age and when you're not a prodigy as I wasn't. I think that you just don't really understand what's going on there. Um, even prodigies, they probably didn't know what was going on, but they were just much better at it. So they're, (laughs) they're benefiting from the setup. Whereas like, you know, when you're, you're sort of like, you know, in the middle of the pack and you're kind of, you're not sure why you're trying to get this woman's attention and she doesn't seem that keen on giving you attention. So it's the whole thing feels a little bit emotionally scarring, I think. Well, and the parents there, you said they're everybody, you know, they're, they're bringing her gifts and bringing her sweets yeah there's a lot of i mean you know miss delay was used to it too just sort of people falling over themselves to do her bidding in any whatever way bring her food bring her dessert bring her you know and she wasn't super mobile she was not so you know she did need people to uh, bring things she walked very slowly she was she was very overweight even at that point for sure so then the lessons themselves uh, you'd get in there were your parents uh, in the lessons with you or they waited outside no by that point they did not come in was it your mom usually bringing you or always yeah i yeah i don't remember i mean my parents were much less involved than some of the other parents and i think sort of consciously so they yeah 
Um, and I give them credit for that. They want to make sure that they were not seen as, as part of the circle of, of moms who were kind of always fawning over the teachers. Um, but it didn't mean that my mom was, or that my parents weren't keenly aware of sort of little little indicators of success or lack thereof. (laughs) Um, i.e. how often you got to see Miss Delane, and that was definitely dictated by how, quote-unquote, well you were doing. Right, because she was not... You, you didn't see her as often as Mr. Kawasaki. Right? No, I would see Mr. Kawasaki every week. The system, of course, is that she was, like, the central person, and, you know, her assistants were sort of on the spokes, and you would see them every week, and then you'd see her she as often planet, as she... and they were the, the moons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and you would only see her as often as she thought was necessary necessary meaning how well you were doing and how how great she thought your chances were for doing something you know solo related with your you know career so at this point i don't know what a career is i don't know of course it became obvious like some some people were doing great (laughs) and it was like oh i i don't know what's happening over there but i'm not doing it um so i mean you know i had i had friends who were out there winning competitions and um i think it became kind of obvious a little bit early on that it was i didn't have the disposition for um a hand-to-hand combat <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't you weren't hoping to go into these competitions and i never was i mean i you know from, from an early age i've had um stage fright issues and i think that would kick in in a kind of an obvious way in uh even just playing for Miss Delay. So I guess it was good practice to play for her because it was terrifying. You know, I'm, and actually now it's even scarier to think of, you know, I I wouldn't think that much of getting up and playing in front of five of my, you know, student friends, my colleagues, I guess, and, uh, and play Tchaikovsky Concerto. Back you know, then. Just, yeah, because, um, you know, seeing Miss Delay wasn't just lessons. And it was, if you were Gil Shaham, or if you were one of the people that she was really grooming had felt that had potential she would just see you either weekly or every other week for only a lesson there was a whole hierarchy of attention that she would Uh give out and so one of the things if she felt that she wanted to keep an eye on you but she didn't think you had a whole lot of potential or you know she would she would give these master classes it was like a group of five or six in your class okay um and you would play for each other which was actually really good you know it was good practice standing up and performing and uh and also seeing what the level is around you and, and right. telling yourself, well, that's where it needs to be or, you know, so so they were good from that standpoint. But she would definitely do that if she didn't feel that you needed it or warranted a lesson. I mean, that's one thing that I really that whole process for me was delayed until I pun intended um, until I was probably sure. 16. I, I just didn't know how other people played really. And I think it was, and in my case, we've talked about this, I think it was too much, you know, I felt (laughs) it was too much exposure and too much pressure to feel like, yeah, to feel like, uh, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing well enough, I'm not keeping up. And I think it was almost more the whole system that I was, you know, I was aware, I was very aware how that system worked and knowing that I was mostly a master class delay student, um, you know, I mean, like all the parents knew who people were who were getting the classes, who were getting the lessons, how often you got lessons versus classes, if you got a mix of lesson and classes. Like, you know, it was like this insane right. yeah. thing when you're 13 or 14. I think it can do a lot of damage or just it can just or or it's testing you in a in a productive way. Like, this is not for me, you know, which is what I what I decided. Ultimately. Ultimately. Well, not just, ultimately, but. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> not not too maybe, many. Maybe years it should have been that. ultimately, but uh, <laughs> that's what I decided when I was sixteen. Anyway. Hey, this is stand partners for life, not you know stand partners till hey, you, you know. I'm to be only forty one. There's there's a possible next chapter that doesn't involve the that's violin. True. <laughs> Um, so the lessons themselves, did, did you always, did you have a pianist for every lesson? Yes. Um, and so talk just a little bit about lessons with Mr. Kawasaki and, and Miss DeLay, what you can remember about those. Mr. Kawasaki was a really tough teacher. He was, it started off, I would, before I was at pre-culture, took a few, I think I took like a summer's worth of lessons with him. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. He was like six months or almost a year at his house, which was very close to our house. Um, so those didn't have piano. My mom still sat in for those. And, you know, he established himself right away as, you know, he's very serious. I mean, that, you know, nothing he did was, was going to be anything other than asking for you to do your very best, you know, at, at a high level, including everything, rhythm, intonation, knowing the score, you know, these are things that he kind of demanded from day one. And at this point, I mean, you're 11, 12, 13, you're playing what kind of pieces, what concertos? I remember doing Kabalevsky early. Uh, Kabalevsky. Probably the first, re- I think I worked on that with him, or maybe that was the last thing I worked on before I moved to him. Yeah, I forget. I, I, I know he mentioned, I remember him saying something about Viotti. <laughs> Uh-huh. Maybe I worked on Viotti. I I have no memory of that. Um, well, was he the kind, of, from what you can remember, I mean, was he pushing the repertoire? I mean, w- were you trying to get through things? I mean, yeah, well, but there was, as, a, as there was a little bit could. of a timeline. And I don't I don't know if that kicked in until I was a little bit older. But, but certainly by the time I was deemed fit to, you know, be in Miss DeLay's presence, um, <laughs> I, you know, at that point, they're really trying to get you. I think they, I think it's learning quickly maybe for every teacher is a priority but for them for sure like the ability to absorb things like you know to have to play one week and then have the next week be almost completely polished it was a little bit um so within a month certainly you were supposed to have learned an entire concerto yeah that's what i wanted to ask you i'm not sure if i ever did ask you that because i read that was the galamian way basically like every week was a movement and then the fourth week was you play the whole concerto yeah i would say a month was probably the given and I'm so on. he's giving you, you start the piece with all his bowings and fingerings or, or missed delays. Yeah. Yeah. There was never any kind of free form. You, you figure this out. No way. Like, yeah, there, if you didn't do exactly as they said, that was a problem. So. And how much would you say you were practicing at that time? And were you practicing on your own or with a, your mom? I was never a great practicer. I mean, I, I kind of, I had a little mini rebellion when I was about 13 that involved actually everything, academics, yeah. uh, violin, and, and I would say I recovered academically <laughs> in as much as my kind of, you know, low-key public high school demanded, you know, I managed to, to meet the minimum requirements there with some degree of... Hey, they started you on violin, so... Yeah, yeah. but at, at this point, you know, it was I was... Yeah. Definitely one of the the nerdy weirdo kids who <laughs> picked up a hobby from like the 19th century, you know. But um, well, you've got company there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so academically it was okay. But I would say violin wise, you know, I think once once I started to see Mr. Lay and you know, once it was part of, I know I feel like I'm really dumping on this system. But once I got re, you know, I got incorporated in this whole system, and I realized that I wasn't. I wasn't doing great. I didn't love performing. Um, you know, I would 
practice really hard and then get super nervous at a concert or a competition or something and then hard to want to keep oh yeah it, it was then. just you know and then and then being constantly I felt like I was being flogged by my teacher or my parents to <laughs> practice and you know and then and of course we talk about getting to the piece that's kind of like you know feels like the wall you know you get there and you're like I I I'm can't really play this very well and I'm not a real violinist I mean I had that depressing realization with a couple key pieces around probably around the same time so you know Carmen Fantasy was one where I just couldn't get those thirds clean in the last I just I couldn't I, to, to this day I'm sure you know and I was like uh, you know I stink and then and then you know Paganini Concerto that was a course that's a course that's a big one and I got there and you know I could I could you know get through some of these other you know I could get through Brahms all right and it's not like I was nailing Brahms or nailing but it's somehow you get to Paganini and you can't even play the first line without feeling like you're gonna have a panic attack that's not a good sign mm. so um I kind of just withdrew I think mentally from so you know sometimes I, I look back and I think I, I really think I've wherever I've gotten at this point in my career I think it was really due to like five good years of practice well <laughs> you know and it, probably at, at the the right time, I suppose you would say, but um. Well, you're saying when you hit this wall, that that's when you were 13, or that that's a little later. When were you learning you know, Paganini concerto? So 13, you know, I I I probably yeah, I had a little a few resurgences of practicing. I, I remember enjoying learning Sansons three or something. So you know, I, I kept going. Probably you're right. I wasn't totally fried until maybe 15. I think maybe 15 was when when we picked up Paganini. Okay. And uh. And yeah, and you know, I had friends who were just nailing the hell out of it. And I guess that's yeah. about the age when I first met PPI. Specifically, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Paganini because uh, yeah, I specifically remember meeting some fifteen-year-olds when I was fifteen or sixteen-year-olds when I was sixteen, and they were playing Paganini, and I was like, "Ooh, I haven't played anything quite like this." I haven't <laughs> well, even tried. And, and you went on to, to play it, so you know that's, well, that's nice that you were able to later and to overcome that. Instead of I think <laughs> I think what happened was I I kind of started practicing less and less, and then when I got to Paganini, realized that that was going to be <laughs> the point. <laughs> <This> <laughs> My practicing less and less <laughs> was starting to you know come home to roost. So, yeah. Well, so you know, but you didn't quit at age fifteen. I mean, you no. Although you know, of course, you're thinking about college a little at that point. So. Mm-hmm. I wasn't real, and my my mom had also recognized that I was not at the same level of seriousness or or level of playing even then. Some other people, that, to her credit, she had high standards. She didn't want me to go into this and be one of the kind of the mediocre students at at conservatory. So she said, I think she said, or I also agreed. You know, we sh- you should just concentrate on on an academic school. Although I did, I still did apply to Juilliard. Um, maybe I I think as a maybe I was thinking I would do the Columbia Juilliard dual program. Oh, okay. So I I focused instead on getting into a regular school where you know the years I put into the violin would be seen as an asset because it meant I was I was really focused you know and at that time especially and I I, I don't think it's the same now but if you, you know you had one kind of a specialty something you'd really put all your effort into and um, certain schools really looked for that. I, I feel like. Colleges still say that now. I nobody knows exactly how they make all their decisions, but that sure. that's still supposed to be the the conventional wisdom is that you know they want kids like you who really right. Although we, I keep hearing they have to be president of the student body, they have to also do all you know have a gazillion things, volunteer work, charity work. That's probably a, a bigger deal now than it used to be. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, 
So, yeah. Well, but I, the bottom line is you got really good grades at, after that point or what? Uh, I was, you know, I was always got good grades. Okay. Because so even in your rebellion, wasn't that hard. You I mean, to, my, you know. You weren't smoking in the bathroom. No. No, I was definitely home at, you know, three o'clock every day. Or <laughs> <laughs> I did, did not give my parents any trouble that way. Um, and so in the end, you got into Harvard. I did. And then um, I got there and I thought, well, I... I worked really hard to get here. I'm done. <laughs> it turns out you're not done when you get to college. You have to think about the rest of your life. And uh, that that was also a shock. I think I'm never good at thinking like more than a couple steps ahead. So that was. Well, I mean, that, that, what are we supposed to do when we're teenagers? You can't, you know. It's Yeah. And it's strange. You get to some places like Harvard and it looks, it really seems like you think, oh, we're just kids, you know, and you're surrounded by kids who have been thinking about what they're going to do with the rest of their life pretty, pretty yeah, quickly. You, you said know? You, you did. You were close with a, a few of those. Well, it, you said it seemed like everybody else had that together. They were very serious. Their about. life plans. Yeah. Or Not necessarily my close friends. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I knew those people, but my friends were, my friends were similar to me, I'd say. Although um, I remember <laughs> one of my first interactions with my roommate Highland I think we talked on the phone because we realized we were going to be roommates they send you their info so you can get to know them before you get to school and Highland was very ambitious and uh, I, I was sort of blown away by that just in that first phone call she told me that she was she wouldn't mind being president of the United States someday wouldn't mind <laughs> or that she, it was a possible goal I think she said you know I, I'd like to be president and I said, of what? And she said, the United <laughs> States. And I I was like, this is scary. I don't think I can handle this. I don't think oh. I can I don't think I can go to the school either. Uh, then I felt sort of trapped. It's like, well, I didn't belong in conservatory. And now I feel like I'm, you know, I'm already, I haven't even started. I'm already behind, you know, my classmates at Harvard. So that was intimidating. And, you know, as we'll talk about eventually, I'm sure that it played into my running back to the violin before graduation trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. That was hard because, like I said, everybody seemed to already know before they set foot on campus. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't even true. It was a little bit of an intimidation factor that, that, that kicked in. Definitely an environment that I I never got to experience. And I mean, I, I would say I miss it, except I never had it. Whenever I've heard you talk about college, it sounds really, really fun. I had a fun time, but it you know, partially because I wasn't one of those people who was just so focused on the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, if that's the right expression. So, you know, you're sure you're ambitious and you know you're super focused, but, you know, maybe you don't have as much time to enjoy the things that make college fun. Yeah, and you got to do a fair amount of that. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, you know, whatever... really fun place. Whatever social life I lacked and in high school, you know, I, I developed a social life in college that was satisfying and fun and that I still, you know, I still stay in touch with most of those people and, um, and a really fond memories. So although I, I like, I think a lot of people look back at college and think, what was I doing? You know, I kind of squandered that expensive education and there's that, but there's also the, (laughs) you know, there's squandering and there's enjoying and there's a little of both going on probably. Well, and that is right around the time, well, it was during that time that you and I met for the first time. So that's right. Since we've, since we've taken, taken ourselves this far, it's a good time to, to wrap this episode up and uh, we'll stay tuned for get the, into the story of Nathan Nakiko's first meeting, which I promise is, is 
good one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why I want to stop the episode here. <laughs> no, we, we really thank you for listening. And if I could ask you guys a favor, it would be to make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you, you're using. But And you can do that at standpartnersforlife.com. And if you're feeling generous enough to leave us a rating or even better, a review, let us know how we're doing. Because already hearing from you, uh, those of you who have emailed me and written about what you want to hear about here at Stand Partners for Life, we've been reading those emails. Uh, We hear what you're saying. And in uh, episodes four and five, we're going to talk about many of the topics that you guys have written in about. So Another way that you can let us know how we're doing is to leave that rating, leave that review, and then that will help other folks like you find our show, and uh, it's just the more the merrier. So thanks again for being here, and we'll see you next time on Stand Partners for Life. Mm